We'd like to welcome you to this series of nonviolence podcasts. These programs are a production of the Gandhi Group, an organization based in the San Francisco Bay Area, dedicated to the study, practice, and teaching of strategic and principled nonviolence as originally defined by Mohandas K. Gandhi. Good morning. My name is Lauren Peters. And my name is George Stacknick. I will be your host throughout this series of podcasts, and I'm very happy to have Lauren with us today as our guest on this program. Lauren is one of the founding members of the Gandhi Group, and so, Lauren, why don't you begin by telling our listeners just a little bit about how you first became interested in nonviolence? I was hired to teach physics at Bishop O'Dowd High School in 1971. The next year, I was asked to create a course on nonviolence. I called it Alternatives to Violence. I taught that class for 40 years. I also spent seven summers in Palestine working with Christian peacemaker teams. And I also spent seven winters in Thailand teaching in a Muslim Peace Institute called International Institute of Peace Studies. And what would you like to talk about on today's program? I'd like to share with you a reflection that I wrote called Setting the Earth on Fire. <laughs> well, I have to say, for a nonviolence podcast, that's kind of a provocative subject. Can I ask where you got the title from? Is it from a book? Well, sort of. This is the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 12, verses 49 51, the reading for last Sunday, August 14th. I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. Do you think I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Well, these certainly aren't the kinds of words that we're used to hearing from, from Jesus in the Gospels. Who is he talking to? He was talking to his disciples. Yes, but what does he mean? What is he talking about? Let me explain. This is not the usual Jesus, all about peace and unity. Jesus saw that Israel was on a collision course with the Roman Empire. Their addiction to money and power would eventually provoke a blazing reaction. Jesus was offering them his way out of this collision, his kingdom of God. But how would the kingdom of God prevent this collision that you're referring to? His kingdom established division between his followers and the addicted who were blind to the consequences of their greed. So in the end, Rome leveled the Jerusalem temple, killed 1.1 million Jews, and drove all the remaining Jews out of Israel. Weren't there also a lot of Christians in Jerusalem at that time? The Jewish Christians had already moved out and were saved. Okay, but what's the lesson in this for us today? What does it have to do with us? Father David's homily this morning on Jeremiah and this Jesus passage was on fire itself. It landed on me as a call to share something with which I have been wrestling, something about America. About America? You mean to say that although Jesus was referring to things that happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that he was also talking about things that are happening here, today, now? It seems to me that America is like Israel. We will eventually set the earth on fire, literally. Jesus' kingdom is the way out for us also. But I fear that our addiction to money and power has already blinded us to where we are going. But where are we going? What do you mean exactly? Let me explain. Around the time of World War II, 
two key technologies developed. One was telecommunications. This made possible transnational corporations. A CEO in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles could follow developments on any continent and initiate actions anywhere on Earth instantly. So this made a new form of empire possible, driven by transnational corporations. And what was the other new technology? You said there were two. The other key technology was the development of nuclear weapons. Empires function by threatening and dominating other countries. The threat of the use of nuclear weapons is the ultimate tool of domination. So telecommunications and nuclear weapons are both very powerful technologies. But how is the United States of America using these technologies today? After Hiroshima and the exhaustion of Britain, France, Russia, and China in World War II, we, that is the U.S., became the leader of the world. In other words, the dominating empire. So you're saying that the United States of America is an empire. I agree with that. No American leader talks about this, but we behave exactly as an empire. Now, for many of our listeners, this idea of the United States as an empire may be a new one and may be a little uncomfortable for you. In fact, the idea of an American empire is one that has been written about extensively, most notably by a man named Johan Galtung. He is a Norwegian sociologist who is the principal founder of an academic discipline of peace and conflict studies. Galtung has developed the theory that the United States is simultaneously behaving as both a republic and as an empire. And while people all over the world greatly admire the United States for its work ethic, its prosperity, and its love of freedom, many at the same time have come to loathe America for its arrogance, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness, which are, according to Galtung, the qualities and characteristics of an empire. But in spite of this, Galtung is quick to point out that he is not anti-American, for example, here's a brief excerpt from an interview that he gave back in the year 2010. When I give talks about this many places in the U.S., I put hand on heart and say I love the U.S. Republic and I hate the U.S. Empire. You see, to many people this doesn't make sense. It's called anti-American. No, no, no. I've had, I'll tell you, people coming up to me saying that that remark relieved them of an enormous problem. Namely, I have so much difficulties with our foreign policy, our economic penetration, our cultural arrogance, our political maneuvering and arms twisting, and yet I love my country. And what I try to say is that these are two different things. So, Lauren... Does Galtung believe that these imperial qualities are going to inevitably lead America into violence and perhaps even war? Yes, I agree with that. But if that were to happen, isn't it true that America's overwhelming military power would guarantee that we would win any such conflict? I don't agree with that. World War III will probably be the shortest war ever fought, several hours to several days long. It will be fought with nuclear weapons. Over the following days, thousands of cities will be consumed in enormous blazing firestorms. 
The smoke will rise into our stratosphere, where much of it will stay for a decade. This will block enough sunlight and drop global temperatures enough that most agricultural crops will not mature. And again, this isn't just Lauren's opinion. This scenario of a worldwide famine being triggered by a nuclear conflict is sometimes referred to as nuclear winter. It's a concept that was first brought to the attention of the public by the renowned scientist Carl Sagan. Let's listen to a brief excerpt from an interview that Mr. Sagan gave over 30 years ago. Nuclear winter is the predicted, from physics calculations, cooling and darkening of the earth following a nuclear war. Basically what happens is uh, mainly from the burning of cities, fine particles get uh, put up into the atmosphere, block sunlight, so it gets darker and and cooler. We uh, did, uh, a little more than five years ago, a set of calculations showing that the effect was horrendous, even for a small nuclear war, that the burning of a hundred downtowns uh, globally was enough to produce a hemispheric-wide global nuclear winter. And uh, there have been uh, a lot of debates on it because it has a set of very disturbing implications about the nuclear arms race. It challenges the fundamental ideas of, uh, of nuclear deterrence. Climate scientists are still researching nuclear winter. And today, one of the leading experts on the subject is named Stephen Starr. Starr is currently the director of the University of Missouri's Clinical Laboratory Science Program. We'll include a link to Mr. Starr's work in the description of this episode. So, Lauren, I don't think there's much doubt at this point that a nuclear war and the nuclear winter that would follow it would have a devastating effect on the planet as a whole. But what about ordinary people? What would that mean to the population at large? The newest scientific study, published August 15th, just this week, estimates death rates of 75% for the whole world. And for the U.S., the death rate will be 99.2%. In other words, nuclear war is essentially suicide, especially here in America. And yet, in spite of all of this, the threat of a nuclear conflict is still very real. Indeed, most analysts would agree that current events like the war in Ukraine are making nuclear war more likely than ever. But Lauren, you seem to be saying that it's not only more likely, it's absolutely inevitable. Yes, I agree with that. Why is that? Decade by decade, our greed increases. Our media, our health care, our education have largely been privatized. The inequality between our rich and our poor grows and grows. Our military budget grows by leaps and bounds. Our war hawks push relentlessly against Russia, China, and many Muslim countries. So the probability of nuclear war by miscalculation or accident or blunder or ignorance or ego grows also. But isn't this just the opinion of a few people out on the fringes? I mean, nuclear weapons have been around for more than half a century, and we haven't had a nuclear war so far. So wouldn't most experts agree that this is a danger that can be avoided? No. In 2019, Martin Hellman, Senior Fellow for Nuclear Risk Analysis, the Federation of American Atomic Scientists, 
estimated the probability at roughly 20% per century. So the probability of no nuclear war in any century may be about 80%. For three centuries, that probability is 80% times 80% times 80%, which is approximately very close to 50%. Now, the half-life of a decaying isotope is defined as the time in which exactly half of that isotope decays. So the half-life of a nuclear civilization may be roughly three centuries. Hellman concludes, continued possession of nuclear weapons makes nuclear war inevitable. But if it's inevitable, what should we do? How can the world save itself from the threat of a nuclear war? A great prophet taught, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, because violence inevitably elicits counterviolence. So if empires live by violence, are they not sowing the seeds of their own downfall? All previous empires have collapsed. Is the U.S. empire collapsing? Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan? We are sending weapons to Ukraine so they will fight Russia for us. We are expanding NATO towards Russia and towards China in the RIMPAC maneuvers. Will these weapons and expansions not eventually lead to larger wars? But if these larger conflicts really are inevitable, and if when they happen they will threaten the very survival of our species, are you saying that there's nothing to be done? Should we all just give up? No, I don't agree with that. Instead of suicide, consider abolishing nuclear weapons. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev negotiated a large reduction in the number of nuclear weapons. The key ingredient was strong verification protocols. Tragically, President Trump was manipulated, probably by our war hawks, into withdrawing from two critical nuclear weapons treaties, the Intermediate Range Missile Ban and the Iran nuclear deal. These withdrawals have increased the likelihood of nuclear war, but nuclear weapons can be abolished, and that will be a long step forward in security. So agreed, banning nuclear weapons would be a giant step forward toward preserving world peace and saving us all from nuclear suicide. But is that it, then? Is that all we need to do? No, that's not right. And why not? In 1955, Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein published a manifesto already pointing out that any nuclear-capable nation facing total dismemberment will likely abandon any such treaty and frantically attempt to build or rebuild some nuclear weapons. So what you're saying is that even if nuclear weapons are effectively banned, that's not going to solve the problem. There's still a threat. So what do we do? So the ultimate solution is the abolition not just of nuclear weapons, but of war itself. Well, that's a noble enough idea, but... Warfare has been part of the human condition for 5,000 years, ever since the invention of the wheel and the domestication of the horse. Yes, I agree with that. Most people today assume war cannot be abolished, but it has been done. What do you mean? When? In 1968, Russia invaded Czechoslovakia. The Czech prime minister suggested they try this Gandhi thing called nonviolence. There was some friendly mischief, rotating road signs, underground newspapers, but mostly they just talked to the invading troops. What do you mean they just talked to them? What, what did they say? Why are you here? We're here to rescue you from your terrible dictator. 
We love our prime minister. He has given us free speech, choice of political parties, democracy. Within one week, most Russian soldiers were refusing orders. So they were all isolated and sent to Siberia, and a new army was brought in. The result was the same, week after week. And after six months, the Russians mostly gave up and went home. The total death toll during this friendly non-war was 137, mostly in the confusion early in the invasion. Well, that is an amazing story. And you said that this result was achieved through non-violence. But, Lauren, that term has come to mean a lot of different things to different people. I mean, Gandhi certainly wrote extensively about nonviolence, and I suppose that for most people, that's the name that comes to mind when you mention nonviolence. But isn't it true that there are many other writers who have been writing on the subject since Gandhi's time? Yes, I agree with that. Can you give us an example? Gene Sharp is the father of strategic nonviolence premised on the withdrawal of consent through mass civil disobedience. In 1985, he wrote a book called Making Europe Unconquerable, using what happened in Czechoslovakia as a beginning template for how to make any country unconquerable, i.e., how to deter attack or defend a country, even America, from invasion, and how to defend from a coup d'etat without war. But how does Sharp do this? Sharp develops the concept of civilian-based defense and proposes refinements through research, policy studies, feasibility studies, contingency planning, preparations, and training. This deterrence and defense are accomplished by widespread non-cooperation and offering massive public defiance. They aim to deny the objectives of the invaders and to make their society politically indigestible and ungovernable by the invaders. They also aim to subvert the loyalty of the aggressor's troops and functionaries, to make them unreliable in carrying out orders and repression, and even to mutiny. Sharp's fundamental insight is that violence is not the source of power in politics. But if it isn't violence, well then what is the source of political power, according to Gene Sharp? Its source is the cooperation of people and human institutions, which can be refused. Nonviolent struggle can generally wield great power, even against ruthless rulers and regimes, because it attacks the most vulnerable characteristic of all hierarchical institutions, dependence on the submission and cooperation of the governed. So political power originates with the people themselves. It doesn't come from the military, and it doesn't come from violence. But People surely need to be able to defend themselves when violence is used against them. How does that work? I need to focus on studying and advocating that our society begin building Sharp's civilian defense, which is related to contemporary unarmed civilian protection. It is the key to preventing future coups d'etat, Trumpian or otherwise, as well as to abolishing nuclear weapons and abolishing war itself. The most difficult part will be the nuclear weapons, because we are so addicted to the benefits of our empire. I suspect we can do this only with the help and by the grace of God. Well, Lauren, we're running out of time for this episode, so I want to take a moment to recap some of the things that we've been talking about. 
We began by reading a passage from the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus says that he came to set the earth on fire, and that the kingdom of God would divide his disciples from the violence and greed of the Roman Empire. Today, it is political empires that threaten to set the earth on fire with nuclear weapons. But the means by which we can save ourselves from this terrible violence are much the same as they were in Jesus' time. We have a different understanding of what the term kingdom of God means today. For example, Lauren, the kingdom of God is an expression that Martin Luther King often used. What did he think it meant? Martin Luther King explained that Jesus' kingdom of God is the beloved community that we are to build. So Jesus saw the world as being divided into two camps, the kingdom of God and the empire, the kingdom of men. And we will know which camp we've decided to join by our behavior. For example, Blessed are the poor, the rich are blinded by their greed. Blessed are the meek, the arrogant have made everyone their enemies. Blessed are the righteous seekers. The self-righteous think they have all of the truth. Blessed are the peacemakers. The warmongers make hell for everyone. Blessed are the persecuted. The persecutors sow the seeds of their own downfall. And with that, I'm going to bring this episode of our podcast to a close. Lauren, let me express my appreciation to you for joining us today, and I certainly hope to have you back for future episodes of the Nonviolence Podcast. Thank you. Peace and blessings. You've been listening to the Nonviolence Podcast, a production of the Gandhi Group based in Northern California. Our theme music, Sapphiros Embrace, is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see the description of this program for links to the writings referenced in this program. Many thanks for listening. My name is George Stagnick.